There's a number of people that uh, are always committed and doing a number of things, especially for men's ministry, but especially uh, this morning. Zach, thank you for leading us in music. There's an extra effort on your part to prepare for that. And then also Mario. Where's Mario? He's probably still in, in the fellowship hall working on that. Uh, Mario and his team be able to pull everything together for breakfast this morning up there. So if you, when you get a chance, uh, give them thanks uh, for their level of effort and behind the scenes. So as we serve, it's an opportunity, but we don't really take a look at it and think about this, is serving as an act of worship. You say, hey, we need toilets cleaned. Are you going to have the mindset and mentality of, I want to do this all to the glory of Christ, all to the glory of God? Where and how be able to serve? Is it behind the scenes? Is it something as, as uh, whether it be the watchman, you know, in, in heat and cold and snow and rain? Well, there's another ministry, and this is why this guy in the red is sitting up here, not only to give me uh, the uh, phone for interpretation for uh, Spanish translation, but uh, there is a huge need right now, and, and that's where we're calling an audible. I want to make sure that you guys are aware of this. We have right now four faithful men week after week that are doing parking lot ministry. And they're not taking a break. They're out there every single week. Heat, cold, every chance you get to see them, thank them. But then you can thank them when you're down in that vest as well. So there's that need. Teodoro is, is one of our deacons. He oversees that you know, thing, a parking lot ministry. This is huge. Has anyone ever parked across Lookout Road? Man, it is dangerous to try and cross, let alone on a Sunday morning. Well, as we look around, we certainly have that need. And so that's where I'm asking you, I'm imploring you, if you're not currently serving, see this guy after you say, hey, I need to sign up. Or if you have someone that you know within the church that isn't currently serving, and like, hey, I know a guy, and sign them up. They're going to be voluntold. This is a huge need. So, Teodoro, thank you for overseeing that, and that's why I wanted to bring Teodoro up to make sure. So please see Teodoro after for anyone that is not currently serving and for that parking lot ministry. The more people that we have, then we can spread that opportunity across, and we can have that rotation. And you say, you sit one, serve one. Right, and so even on a Sunday morning or every other week, whatever that might be. But anyway, Teodoro, thank you. Man, if you can uh, open up uh, your uh, your Bible, <clears throat> and then also that uh, you should have received an, an outline. If anyone does not have an outline, Joseph, you're you're passing those out. Uh, we have some pens over there as well. Chance, thanks for getting these guys uh, rounded up. Be able to have have that. Uh, let me open up in a in a word of prayer, <clears throat> and uh, so we can we can get get through this. Holy Father, thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to uh, worship you, to praise you uh, on another morning and another day. Lord, thank you that uh, uh, you are sovereign. You are sovereign over us, and and uh, you are the ruler, <clears throat> uh, and the sovereign ruler. Lord, I pray that we uh, know and understand not only the sovereign ruler, but to where then we can have sovereign joy. And as we open up uh, not only this week, but this year in 2024, help us to know and understand. Help us to have that true joy in you. So 
I pray that our hearts and minds be open to you, to your word, and uh, to hear this message on how men had gone before us and just being faithful and how you open up their eyes and to where they were obedient to you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, another uh, announcement, just as a heads up, so as we start 2024, that the February men's breakfast is going to be a little earlier in the month of February, so we're at January 20th right now, already mark on your calendars that it's going to be on February 10th, so Saturday morning, February 10th, and that next topic on what we're going to be having is going to be on joy in our singing. You're like, oh, I don't sing very well, like we'll sing loud because whether or not you're in tune just sing louder if you're out of tune, like me. So that is what we're going to have. All right, so one, Psalm 146, and I want to focus on verses 8 through 10 just as we open up. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. With a book from John Piper, where a lot of my content has has come from, John Piper wrote a book, and it's called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. And it's important that we examine biographies of godly men that have gone before us. It's a really a great book. This past Sunday, during closing uh, message that I, that I had, you know, thinking about uh, the, the topic of resolutions by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, he lived from 1703 to 1758, and he had a famous sermon. If anyone has not heard of it, look it up and see the impact that that one sermon had on literally generations of, of people. And it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He recorded 70 resolutions over a span of a few months in the year 1722 and 1723. Here's a statement from Jonathan Edwards. Due to a history of failure to keep my New Year's resolutions and why I've continued to emphasize this. We always look at, well, it's a new year. How do we resolve? What are we going to do? You know, we've got a new hope. We've got a new year. You know, turning the page when we're looking forward. What are we resolving to do? Jonathan Edwards, due to a history of failure to keep my New Year's resolutions, I find myself more reluctant to make any. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to, you know, go on that diet. Fail, epic fail, year after year, right? It's like, okay, well, so we're going to be reluctant as time goes on to do that. Well, that's what Jonathan Edwards said then. However, in my hope to live a life to the glory of God and to the expansion of the kingdom of his son, I do frequently repent and resolve to do better throughout the year. Like, man, that's a great statement. In my hope to live a life to the glory of God and to the expansion of the kingdom of his son, I do frequently repent and resolve to do better throughout the year. That's really for all of us. All right, in resolutions 1 through 21 by Jonathan Edwards were written in one sitting in New Haven in 1722. And then he added to the list through August of 1723. 
He then read them again each week of his life. Men like Jonathan Edwards and the guy who I'm going to be really presenting to discuss about men of sovereign joy is Augustine. Men like this have had an impact on Christianity and how we can live over centuries since they have left this earth. Okay, so in your outline, you see, you're like, okay, well, yeah, why is this topic and this general theme of sovereign joy and servants of sovereign joy over this year is really wanting to get our hearts and our minds set on a number of things. So, so I have some of those. You can fill in the blank. That's right. And this is kind of active, be engaged. Why do we want to have the year 2024 as the theme of sovereign joy? Well, here's a number of reasons why we want to do this. They help us feel we are part of something bigger than ourselves. You're like, well, I'm just this little person, but in the whole grand scheme of things, Lord has a perfect design and how he will use each and every one of us to his good and for his glory and to serve him. So we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Number two, they show us that the worst of times are not the last of times. We didn't have trials and tribulations. I spoke about that in adult Bible study uh, this last month. We're, we're going to have those. Jesus promised that in John 16, 33. And have those worst of times and those trials, we can be thankful because that's part of our sanctification. You know, like It's never fun going through those trials. Amen, right? I've been able to deal with those, some of those myself. But the great thing is that the worst of times is not the last of, of those times, not only having those trials and tribulations, but then also as to where we have our hope. Hey, Lord is, is sovereign over all, and he will take care of these things. Whether it be good, bad, whatever, he is in control of all of those. All right, number three, they made the promise visible that God works all things for our good. We may not know and understand it in that period of time, like, well, why am I struggling with this? Why am I going through that? Remember, the promise <clears throat> that is visible that God works all things for our good. Number four, these men that have gone before us have modeled courage and perseverance in the face of withering opposition. So if you're going through a trial of tribulation, you're being persecuted, whether it be from a neighbor, from a coworker, from your work environment, whoever, whatever that that might be, Having that perseverance, knowing that these men before us have modeled that courage and perseverance. It'd be encouraging for all of us. It's like, hey, I'm not the only person, right? We can get down into our own little cloud or, or with that circle and, man, woe is me or it can be difficult. But when we take a look at some of these other things, like, man, these men had a lot of adversity, a lot of things that they had to overcome. What can we do? This is how they did it. All right, number five, they can help us to be focused to the cause of truth and love and world evangelization. Another one, they can revive our love for Christ's church. When we get in our bubble, when we get in some things, we're kind of like, I call you're just floating down the river of life. Don't, right? We have this joy. What is our purpose? What is our meaning? You, know, you just kind of get stuck in the run. Like, man, let's find our, our lost love, our first love, and that is through Jesus. They can revive our love for Christ's church. So that's sovereign joy. Or another one, they can reinforce our resolve to be a faithful husband 
and father. Resolve to be a faithful husband and father. Man, that's what we're called to do. We're called to lead. So to be a good husband, we'd be a good father, but then also is how are we spiritually leading our families and others as well? Another one, they can stir us up to care about seeing and savoring the beauty of God. Another one, they can inspire us to speak of that beauty of God in a way that doesn't bore. How do you weave the gospel into a coworker, into a neighbor, into your work environment? How do you weave that in? Like, man, oh, if God's such a loving God, why would he do this? How do you weave the gospel and the beauty and the deep love of what God has and why he is who he is? How do you... So, so these are these things that have that sovereign joy and reminding us of the beauty, and it doesn't bore. It'd be exciting to be able to speak to that. We have that privilege of being able to do that. All right, another one, they can quicken a love for Christian camaraderie in the greatest cause of this world. So when you wake up on a Saturday morning or even on a Friday night, you're like, man, I get to go to men's breakfast. I get to go to men's fellowship in the morning. Or like, okay, well, this is on the calendar, the schedule. I want to make sure that I look good. Yeah, I need to go do that. Where's your mindset on that? You've got to or you get to. Like, man, I get the opportunity to be able to see a whole bunch of men here just like on a lead on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday, yeah, on a Wednesday morning, but a Sunday morning also. It's extremely encouraging when people show up and they have the mindset of, hey, we want to worship. We want to have that fellowship. We want to encourage. We want to strengthen one another. So it quicken a love for Christian camaraderie in the greatest cause of this world. You'd be beaten down and being isolated and be able to be apart from others, but being in, in with like-minded men, man, it is refreshing to go to church every Sunday morning because of on how we can get beaten up throughout the week. Like, man, that's a retreat. I get to be with my church family and you know, people that love Christ and we want to exalt him. We want to encourage one another. We want to strengthen each other. We want to make more, all of us to be mature in Christ. All right, and the last bullet point, they can do it in a way that causes us to rejoice in the Lord and be glad that we are in him and in his service, especially when you're going through that trial and tribulation. Do you have sovereign joy when you're going through those trials and tribulations as well? All right, so as going back to the theme of uh, sovereign joy, so to kick off this year's theme, and the man that experienced sovereign joy, <clears throat> the guy we're going to be talking about this morning, primarily focused on, is uh, Augustine. His background, his history, his teachings, his influence, and his lessons that he taught and that generations had learned. And that at the end, there are some key takeaways as well. Okay, so like, who is this Augustine? Who's Aurelius Augustine, and why should we care about this individual? I'm like, okay, where well, are you going to do a Wikipedia search? And like, yeah, I don't know much about this guy. Well, the more you learn about some of these men, you're like, wow, the impact that they had. It's just like with Dwight Moody, right? He was just a faithful guy that even, you know, people were saying that he had a speech impediment. But he is faithful and obedient, 
and through all of, all of the things that he had gone through is just those two things. Men, what are we doing to be faithful and obedient? But what are those events in our life that have caused us to, one, begin to have that knowledge of Christ for our eyes to be opened? There are a number of things that we'll talk about in here. All right, so Augustine. I'm going to kind of back and forth in a general theme here. He died at the age of 75 in 430 A.D. So, so this is, we're going way back. It's not like Jonathan Edwards that we spoke about in the 1700s. I mean, we're going way back, almost 1,600 years ago. All right, so his influence over those 1,600 years in his voice was impactful to a couple of other key men that we know and recognize those names, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Luther was an Augustinian monk, and Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other church father. His influence on the Protestant Reformation was extraordinary. Augustine's Song of Grace is unlike anything you're going to read in almost any modern book about grace. The omnipotent power of grace for him is the power of sovereign joy. So, why is this important? This alone delivered Augustine from a lifetime of bondage. Men, listen up, because this impacts each and every one of us, especially in today. This alone delivered Augustine from a lifetime of bondage, from sexual appetite and philosophical pride. We need and we can use the ancient biblical insight of Augustine to free us from the pleasant slavery that foils the fulfillment of the great commandment and the finishing of the great commission. Augustine's writings flow in and out of prayer because for him, the whole life of a good Christian is a holy desire. And that desires for God above all things and in all things. So this was his desire to write, to awaken and sustain. Once he had that sovereign joy, just like all of us, man, we have that sense of urgency. We want to shout it from the rooftops. That was his desire. That was his focus. All right, so his life in overview, Augustine's life in overview, he was born in a town near Hippo, which is now in what is now known as Algeria, on November 13th, 354 A.D. His father was a middle-income farmer and was not a believer. He worked hard to get Augustine the best education and rhetoric, that he could have, which was first at Medora, which was 20 miles away, and when Augustine was there at age 17 to 15. Then after a year at home, he was in Carthage from age 17 to age 20. His father was converted in 370, which was the year before he, his father died. So a year before his father passed away is where he was converted. He, he received Christ. That was when Augustine was only 16 years old. But a little bit more on the background on his family. His mother, named Monica, was a devout Christian. And his father, who was Patricius, was a pagan. And again, I mentioned that he was converted uh, prior to his death. Augustine had a brother named Navigius, if I'm pronouncing that properly, and a sister whose name is lost but is conventionally remembered as Perpetua, or Perpetua. Scholars generally agree that Augustine and his family were Berbers, 
which is an ethnic group indigenous to North Africa, but were heavily Romanized and speaking only Latin at home as a matter of pride and dignity. In his writings, Augustine leaves some information as to the consciousness of his African heritage, at least geographically and perhaps ethnically. <clears throat> Augustine's family name, Aurelius, suggests his father's ancestors were freedmen of the gens Aurelia, given full Roman citizenship by the Edict of Caracalla in 212. You ever heard of Marcus Aurelius? who was a leader of, of Rome, that same uh, sect. I want to say sect, but that lineage. Roman, uh, Augustine's father had family had been Roman from a legal standpoint for at least a century before he was born. So we're going to take a look at, well, I'm in America, right? We, we have that identity in some of those things, whether it be from our lineage, from where we live. Same thing with Augustine. All right, so it was assumed by his mother, Monica, was of Berber origin on the basis of her name, but his family were named, were Honestioris, which is an upper class of citizens known as honorable men. Augustine's first language was likely Latin. So I'm setting up the kind of this background is like, all right, well, so what, right? Why is this important? Well, I'll wait for it because as we pull these key takeaways at the end, you'll know and understand why. Because like, well, why is this any different than any of us that are, that are sitting here uh, this morning? You know, as his father was a middle income farmer. It wasn't this prestige, wasn't this upper echelon, you know, a class of society, and you know, just call it mainstream, mainline people. All right, so his first insight, Augustine's first insight into the nature of sin occurred when he and a number of friends stole fruit that they did not want, and they stole it from a neighborhood garden. He tells this story in his autobiography, Confessions, and he remembers he stole the fruit not because he was hungry, but because it was not permitted. His very nature, he says, was flawed. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own error. Not that for which I erred, but the error itself. From this incident, he concluded the human person is naturally inclined to sin and in need of the grace of Christ. All right, so a question. Isn't that perfectly true with our sin nature? Doesn't that even go back to the beginning with Eve in the Garden of Eden? Augustine's mother had followed him to Milan and arranged a respectable marriage for him. Although Augustine acquiesced, he had to dismiss his concubine and grieve for having forsaken his lover. Remember, he's of the world. All right, he wrote, My mistress being torn from the side as an impediment to my marriage, my heart, which cleaved to her, was racked and wounded and bleeding. Augustine confessed that he had not been a lover of wedlock so much as a slave of lust. So he procured another concubine since he had to wait two years until his fiancée came of age. So back in the day, they're getting married at a very young age. I'm like, well, how much younger is his fiancée? 
where, hey, I've got to wait another two years. We're like, well, I'm not going to patiently wait for this. I'm going to continue with this other concubine. And again, he, he was a slave of his lust. However, his emotional wound was not healed. It was during this period that he uttered his famously insincere prayer, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. All right, men. So how many men could be praying the same thing? The spirit convicts you of lust, perhaps as you very well could be looking at pornography, but you'd be married. Or... You're not married. Are you given into your flesh and not willing to pick up your cross daily to slay that sin in order to be pure and holy? Here's what Augustine struggled with. It's not anything different than what any warm-blooded male can go through. I call that the Achilles heel, right? Right through the eyes. Lord... Satan knows exactly what he's doing, especially for men, as that can always be a challenge, the lust of, uh, through the eyes. All right, resorting to Sortes Biblicae, he opened up a book of St. Paul's writings. He read that at random and read Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which says, Not in writing and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Before he left for Carthage to study for three years, his mother warned him earnestly to not, not to commit fornication and above all, not to seduce any men's wife. Why is she pleading with him and say, hey, don't do that? She probably observed, hey, here's a pattern of her son. So she's making that plea to him, don't do this. Before he left for that, so, so Augustine started when he went to Carthage and he found himself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. His real need was for God, who is the food of the soul, and he was not aware of this hunger. Of course, his eyes are not opened yet. He was willing to steal, although he was not compelled by any lack. Remember what he wrote in Confessions, and we're like, well, yeah, just stealing this fruit because it's there. I didn't have a need. All right, so also Augustine, he was at the top of his school in the study of rhetoric, and he was pleased with his superior status and swollen with conceit. Can't we, don't we do that same thing? Whether you win an award at work or your lawn, fill in the blank, right? What are those things that we can be prideful of? Any accomplishment? Well, Augustine certainly was. It was his ambition to be a good speaker. He took a concubine in Carthage and lived with this same woman for 15 years. And he also had one son by her. So being enslaved to that sin, remember, he is not a believer yet. He became a traditional schoolmaster teaching rhetoric from age 19 to 30. And then he spent his last 44 years of his life as an unmarried monk and a bishop 
In his 29th year, he moved from Carthage to Rome to teach, but was so fed up with the behavior of the students that he moved to a teaching post in Milan, Italy in the year 384. He studied and experienced Plagianism and Platonism, but he was held back not by anything intellectual, but by his sexual lust. Quote, I was still held firm in the bonds of a woman's love, end quote. Therefore, the battle would be determined by the kind of pleasure that triumphed in his life. Another quote, I began to search for a means of gaining the strength I needed to enjoy you. How shall I find strength to enjoy, enjoy God more than sex? But I could not find this means until I embraced the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. In the heart of his book, Confessions, he wrote about his bondage to lust when others were free and holy in Christ. The experience of God's grace and his conversion had him baptized that next Easter in the year 387 in Milan by Ambrose. At almost 34 years of age, he returned to Africa with a view of establishing a kind of monastery for him and his friends, whom he called servants of God. He had given up the plan for marriage and committed himself to celibacy and poverty, that is, the common life with others in that community. He had a son by the name of Adeodatus that passed away in the following year of 389. Remember, there's a son from the concubine, from the lover he was with for 15 years, which is illegitimate because he was not married to her. Then he then saw that he might be more strategic by moving his community to the larger city of Hippo. Through this, though, God had the divine plan of him staying there for the rest of his life. All right, so Augustine's discovery of sovereign joy. So by all these things and this history and setting this up, God certainly had this divine plan for him. In a garden in Milan, Italy, when he was 31, the power of grace through the truth of God and, and his word broke 15 years of that bondage to sexual lust in living with that concubine. His resistance was finally overcome by sovereign joy, the beautiful name he gave to God's grace. Sovereign joy, God's grace. He stated, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. O Lord, my God, my life, my wealth, and my salvation. Augustine knew that his liberty from lust in his power to live for Christ, understanding a biblical truth, long on the liberty of one of his prayers. The battle for omnipotent grace was not theoretical or academic, but it was practical and pressing. And what was at stake was holiness and heaven. All right, so let's pause for a moment to examine what Augustine was pursuing through his studies. I had mentioned, it's like, well, Pelagianism. I'm like, okay, well, what is that? What, just for a moment to identify what that is. Pelagian thought and philosophy. It is this. Though grace may facilitate the achieving of righteousness, it is not necessary to that end. He, Pelagia, denied the doctrine of original sin 
and asserted that human nature at its core is good and able to do all that it is commanded to do. Well, we certainly know that there is error in that. That is that Pelagian thought and philosophy summarized down into that one statement. All right, it took 10 years of Augustine to absolve him from this thought, but as he, so that from that Pelagian thought, 10 years, be working through that. But as he wrote Confessions, this quote might be one of the most important paragraphs for understanding the heart of his thought and perhaps the essence of Augustinianism. All right, quote, hang with me. During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might, bind, might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. Again, this is the key reality for understanding the heart of Augustinianism. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine, outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, in my salvation. So this was Augustine's understanding of grace. Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs with joy over that sin. So in other words, God works deep in the human heart to transform these springs of joy so that we love God more than sex or anything else. Loving God in his mind is never reduced to deeds of obedience or acts of willpower. When you think of your personal testimony, when you came to that understanding, God granted repentance to you. Did you experience that true and sovereign joy? Have you lost your first love? These are these things on what he was focusing on, never reduced to deeds of obedience or acts of willpower. Like, we can't do it on our own, right? Our willpower, yes, we do want to have those acts of obedience, but as I had mentioned before, and even serving, it's we get to, it's not I've got to. I want to do it out of obedience, out of the love and being a slave to Christ. That is why we want to have those acts of obedience. All right, loving God is being so satisfied in God and so delighted in all that he is for us that his commandments cease to be burdensome. We need God badly enough today to help us recover the root of all Christian living in the triumph and joy in God that dethrones the sovereignty of laziness and lust and greed. We can fall in those things. If we don't have that true and sovereign joy, we can fall in. Like We're called to be in this world and not of this world. How are we differentiating ourselves? Do we and are we focused on our first love? Do we understand? Do we truly appreciate on a daily basis that sovereign joy 
at God's grace. So for Augustine, loving God is always a delighting in God and in other things only for God's sake. Augustine analyzed everything to the lighting in God and in anything else for his sake. Everything springs from this delight in God. In his view, saving grace is God's giving us a sovereign joy in God that triumphs over all other joys and therefore sways the will. The will is free to move toward whatever it delights in most fully, but it is not within the power of our will to determine what their sovereign joy will be. Here, Augustine concludes, and I quote, A man's free will indeed avails for nothing except a sin, if he knows not the way of truth. And even after his duty and his proper aim shall begin to become known to him, unless he also takes delight in and feel a love for it, he, not, he neither does his duty nor sets about it, nor lives rightly. Now, in order that such a course may engage our affections, God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. And according to Romans 5, 5, not through the free will which arises from ourselves, but through the Holy Spirit which is given us. So why is the concept of Christian freedom so different in Augustine than in Pelagius? It is this, the fact that grace governs life by giving a supreme joy in the supremacy of God. The fact that grace governs life by giving a supreme joy in the supremacy of God. For Augustine, freedom is to be so much in love with God and his ways that the very experience of choice is transcended. The ideal of freedom is to be so spiritually discerning of God's beauty and to be so in love with God that no one ever stands with equilibrium between God and an alternate choice. You shall worship your, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is having that there. Like, oh, yeah, all these other things. They're going to be clouded out and they're going to be diminished because the focus is on God and that sovereign joy and that worship of him. Augustine had a view that the entire Christian life is seen as a relentless quest for the fullest joy in God. He also said the whole life of a good Christian is a holy desire. So in other words, the key to Christian living is a thirst and hunger for God. And one of the main reasons people do not understand or experience the sovereignty of grace and the way it works through the awakening of sovereign joy is... Their hunger and thirst for God is so small. Do we have a renewed longing for God like Augustine did? The reason is that so many do not long for anything very much. They're just coasting and not passionate about anything. They're cold, not just toward the glory of Christ and the gospel, but toward everything. Don't be like that. All right, predestination. Another thing with Augustinianism. He taught that God orders all things while preserving human freedom. So prior to 396, he believed predestination was based on God's foreknowledge of whether individuals would believe in Christ, that God's grace was a reward for human assent. Later, in response to Pelagius, Augustine also said that the sin of pride consists in assuming, quote, we are the ones who choose God or that God chooses us 
in his foreknowledge because of something worthy in us, end quote, and argue that God's grace causes the individual act of faith. So rather than just with his grace, you think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We can't even boast that we had the faith to come to know Christ. He even gave us that. That is amazing scripture. So the same thing here is, oh, well, man is good, and yeah, he'll come to that knowledge. I mean, that's puffed up with pride and, of course, wrong in, wrong in thought. All right, the place of prayer and the pursuit of joy. The place of prayer and the pursuit of joy. When Augustine wrote Confessions, his book, all 350 pages were written as a prayer. Every sentence is addressed to God. He was utterly dependent on God for the awakening of love to God. How about us? In Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Do we pray that? His mother, Monica, have learned patience in the pain of long, unanswered prayers. Whether it be her husband that was unfaithful to her or Augustine sneaking away from his mother in Carthage and sailing to Rome, he later shared with his mother what God had done in answer to her prayers. God gave her joy far greater than her dearest wish. In John 16, 24, it says, Ask and you shall receive so that your joy may be full. We could be praying for years. I know that there are men and women that have been praying for perhaps family members for decades. Decades. It be a long, unanswered prayer. But yet it could be right up until that person on their deathbed where then God grants that repentance and they are saved. Be faithful in your prayers. All right, displaying the superior delight of knowing God. Along with prayer is the hunger and thirst for God, which is more desirable and satisfying than all of creation. Augustine, we know, he had a zeal for people that might come to see the beauty of God and love him. God, not loving Augustine. You yourself, O oh God, are their joy. Happiness is to rejoice in you and for you and because of you. This is true happiness, and there is no other. Augustine would always tell his readers that they must look into scriptures with the eyes of their heart on its heart. So this means that one must look at, with love at what one only partially sees. He says, it is impossible to love what is entirely unknown, but then what is known, even if so little is loved, this very capacity for love makes it better and more fully known. All right, so in other words, loving or delighting in what we know of God in Scripture will be the key that opens Scripture further. Let me repeat that. Loving or delighting in what we know of God in Scripture will be the key that opens Scripture further. So back to Jonathan Edwards and the resolution. Do you resolve to read the Bible on a daily basis? There's a reason why we have the daily Bible reading. Oh, I don't have time for that. 
just a few minutes of being in God's word gives you the appetite for more and where then it, it's foundational, right? Like, man, you get that hunger, you get that appetite to read more and more and more. That is why one of those things is we want to build every man complete and mature in Christ is those foundational things. Do we pray enough? Do we read God's word? Are we in that? Take those five minutes. Take the 10 minutes. We all have that. If we say, oh, I'm busy. Sorry, that is a major excuse. There's a major difference between, um, you know, being busy and, and being active. We're being busy. How often do we waste 5, 10, 30 minutes, an hour a day in a variety of different things? Are we focused and do we have that delight on and in God? Do we have that appetite for prayer and to be in, to be reading scripture? So then scripture opens up further to where then we can have that greater appetite and that deeper knowledge of God. The unchanged relevance of grace as sovereign joy. Sovereign joy was not relevant only for preaching, but it's also for evangelism. If you take a look at that with sovereign joy of when you were first saved, did anyone really have a, a huge basis of scriptural knowledge? Probably not. You're like, that doesn't matter. You wanted to shout it from the rooftops because of what God's grace and what he had done in your life. You wanted to evangelize. You wanted to share with other people on what God had done with you. So, well, I don't have enough scripture. When we have that deep, sovereign joy of God in us, we will want to share with others about that grace and that sovereign joy of what God has given us. Am I not alone in this desire for the blessed state of happiness? Nor are there only a few who share it with me. Without exception, we all long for happiness. All agree, yeah, they want to be happy. They all may search for it in different ways, but all try their hardest to reach the same goal. That is joy. And isn't this true of the world? Worldly pursuits and those pleasures, what are they trying to pursue? Is that joy? But it's not joy because we know that it's empty and it's deceitful. So we know that the world pursues happiness through those empty pleasures. When we find pure joy through the knowledge of God and his saving grace, as I had mentioned, why don't we want to share that with others so they can experience the same thing? Augustine's doctrine of delight in God is the root of all Christian living. He brings it to bear on the most practical affairs of life and shows that every moment in every circumstance we stand on the brink between the lure of idolatry and the delight of seeing and knowing God. His vision of salvation through Jesus Christ and of living the Christian life is rooted in his understanding and experience of grace, the divine gift of triumphant joy in God. The power that saves and sanctifies is the work of God deep beneath the human will to transform these springs of joy so that we love God more than sex or scholarship or food or friends or fame, new heart or money. Grace is the key because it is free and creates a new heart with new delights that govern the will and works of our lives. Romans 9.16, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 
Romans 9.16. So, how can we experience sovereign joy? On grace, as the free gift of sovereign joy in God that frees us from the bondage of sin. We need to make plain that total depravity is not just badness, but blindness to beauty and deadness to joy. An unconditional election means that the completeness of our joy in Jesus was planned for us before we ever existed. That limited atonement is the assurance that indestructible joy in God is infallibly secured for us by the blood of the covenant. And irresistible grace is the commitment and power of God's love to make sure that we don't hold on to suicidal pleasures and to set us free by the sovereign power of superior delights. Do we experience sovereign triumph and joy in our lives like Augustine did? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. I'm repeating myself, but that's a very important statement from Augustine. You drove them from me and took their place. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Are we in bondage and delight in the pleasures of this world? Do we love television? and food, and sleep, and sex, and money, and human praise, just like everybody else? Or do we talk about the glory of God? If we do the latter, let us repent and fix our faces towards the word of God. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in this whole thing, it's like, well, why should we care about Augustine? Yeah, that was a guy that lived 1,600 years ago. It's extremely important on that journey and what he had, the design and plan that God had for him. But we should know, living the lives of famous Christians through church history for a number of reasons, especially pertaining to Augustine. First, to analyze his life. Why we want to go through the history, understanding about his faithful mom, encouraging him, praying for him. His dad, that was just a standard run-of-the-mill guy. He wasn't of, you know, fame or wealth. For any of us who've had prodigal children or have found ourselves indulging in an anti-Christian lifestyle, we can know that hope exists for us. So Augustine went from an extremely hedonistic lifestyle to a monastic one, despite his worries about his full commitment to sanctification. Second, we'd be encouraged by Augustine's story from the people whom we've placed seeds of the gospel. Just like with his mom praying for him and sharing that faith, if he, she was a, a devout believer, like, hey, if you get around to it, she lived it, she taught it, she prayed for her children, she prayed for her husband, being faithful in that. Augustine didn't convert right away. It took years before God granted him that knowledge and that repentance. Even when he intellectually accepted the truth of Christianity, it took him a while to fully commit. We understand, like, okay, well, yeah, I'm finally going to have, you know, I'm going to allow God to come into my life. No, that's not biblical truth, right? So we describe 
God grants us that repentance. But as through his sovereign <clears throat> display of his glory, we know that with those seeds being planted and where there was that specific exact time in, on this earth with Augustine and where then he was granted that repentance and saying, oh, well, yeah, I have fully and wholly commit at that time is when, where he was truly saved. Not everyone whom we share the gospel with will accept Jesus in their lives, or at least not until while we spend a season with them. Know that God continues to work behind the scenes, just as he had with Augustine. And like his mother, continue to pray fervently. Finally, God reminds us of our desperate need for God. We cannot attain grace through our own merit, as the Pelagian thought and philosophy is. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But God, because he loves us so much, he allows us to have his grace unmerited. Just as Augustine had before us, we accept it freely now. Grace is an unmerited favor. Augustine made great strides in our understanding of original sin, our total depravity, and God's unmerited grace. In short, we do know and we have to understand that we are completely corrupt. And unlike the ideas of heretic Pelagius, whom Augustine fought in his day, we cannot do anything to earn our salvation. God gives it lovingly and freely. May we live in sovereign joy and live in the fullness of God like Augustine did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, work deep in our hearts to transform these springs of joy so that we may love you more than sex or money or accomplishments or anything else. Lord, I pray that we love you completely so it's never reduced to an act of our willpower but through your spirit and your strength, we know that that can be conquered. I pray that we'll be so satisfied in you and so delighted in all that you are for us that your commandments cease to be burdensome. Lord, we need you badly today to help us live in the triumph and joy in you that dethrones the sovereignty of laziness and lust and greed. Lord, help us to die to self. Help us to have that hunger and thirst for you. For it is only in you and through you are we able to do this. Help us to encourage one another so we may experience that true sovereign joy in you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.